0: I've only thrown a wrench once in my life. This is years ago. Uh, I was in my garage. I think I was around eleven or twelve, and I was trying to fix my bike, and I lost it. I came to the I came to the end of myself and got incredibly frustrated. How many of us have been there before? How many of us have taken the tools we were using and thrown them in a very aggressive manner. Honest confessions. This is what happens to us when we get to the end of ourselves, when we we have tried absolutely everything and nothing seems to be working. This is what the psalmist experienced in this psalm. Came to the end of himself... And if you notice in the psalm, the, f- the first part is talking about all the things that he was trying, all the things that he was trying to do to, to, to ask God, to get God to help him in the situation that he was in. He was in need and he longed for God to help him and he tried meditating, he tried remembering, he tried crying out to God, physically stretching his hands, he, he tried everything and nothing seemed to be working in the first part of this psalm, the psalmist is actually doing what a lot of self-help books would tell us to do. So recently, I, I read a book called Atomic Habits. And it's ta- the, the book was talking about how to break bad habits and how to build good habits. And And the the premise of this book, if you could, if you could sum it up, was, was you are a product of the process that you submit yourself to. All the habits, all the things that you do, if you could package them, the results are shown from from the habits that you have. But in this psalm, we get a different picture. The habits of prayer, of meditation, of crying out to God, of all the things that this psalmist was taught to do didn't seem to be working. So what if the results don't match the process? What if the things that we have been taught don't seem to be working? Then doubts begin to emerge. What if it's me, you know, we think? What if, what if I'm the problem? And One of the things that led to the frustrations of me in, in my garage when I was 12 years old trying to fix my bike was that I just couldn't figure it out. Is it me? am I the problem? I can't do this. I can't fix this bike. I can't, I, all of these doubts begin to emerge. Or in the language of this psalm, will the Lord reject me forever? Have his promises failed for all time? See, doubt can often be found at the intersection of what we've heard to be true and what we actually experience. When there's a disconnect there, it can bring up all of these doubts in our mind. And so last week when we were, we were talking about uh, Psalm 42 and 43, we talked about how do we pray when we don't feel God's presence? When we, when we go to worship and we don't feel like God is moving, when we pray and we don't feel like he's there, how, how do we work through that? And this psalm kind of takes that a step further and says to us, how do we pray when we have doubts that result from God's presence, not being, not feeling God's presence, or him not helping us? How do we handle doubt in our lives? Even doubt, like questions like, what if God doesn't exist? What if if this is all phony? What if he doesn't care about me? What if I've done too much wrong in my life for God to actually forgive me? How do you handle doubt in your faith? When I was growing up, I knew there were times in my faith journey where I had doubts. I had to to, to process and to work through doubts. And and I I was having a hard time because I didn't feel like I was allowed to doubt. I didn't feel like a Christian should doubt. And nobody really talked about it in my church. And because Nobody talked about it. I thought that, the, that, that I was wrong for having these feelings. But this psalm shows us that doubt is a part of faith. Every Christian will go through times when they doubt God's goodness, when they doubt God's faithfulness, or even when they doubt things like, how can we know the Bible is true? Every Christian will wrestle with these things, and this psalm is a testament to the fact that that's Okay, there is room in the Christian faith for people with doubt. The rest of the Bible offers a testament to this as well as Abraham and Sarah went through times when they doubted God. John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was the one he sent his disciples to say, "Are you the one or should we look for somebody else?" And and Thomas most famously Thomas doubted the resurrection. One thing in all of these instances remained consistently true is that God remained present with these people. He didn't leave them. He stayed committed to letting them wrestle with and work through doubt. I read an article this week that put a different spin on how we see doubt. And the author uh, said this, said, I've been through 26 grades of school. Imagine that, 26 grades of school. It's a lot of education. Ph.D., Masters of Divinity, all of these these things, these massive theological trainings that this person went through and said this, and my 12-year-old's questions about God stumped me. How could how can somebody not, who goes through 26 grades of school still be stumped by a 12-year-old's question? And he says this. He says, I don't feel bad about it. Because one thing, if God could be fully understood, fully explained, then he wouldn't really be God. He would just be a kind of a cool person. For God to be God, there would need to be aspects of his nature and his actions that are inexplicable. For God to be God, there would have to be things that to us, we can't fully understand. Things that he does in our lives that we don't quite get. And that leads us into these times of doubt. We should expect them as a part of the Christian faith. But what do we do in the midst of them? And this psalm, Psalm 77, offers us some some ways to pray through our doubts. So the first thing that we see in this psalm that this, this psalmist is doing is, is understanding that faith is a journey. It's not a sprint. This entire psalm, this person is praying to God to help them in their time of need. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there's a lot of different th- ways that this psalmist is trying to get God's attention. And almost naturally, though, we think of this psalm as an isolated unit of just— this is one night of this psalmist crying out to God. But uh, one Bible commentator that I read this week made a a really keen observation and said, if you notice the tense of the Hebrew words in this psalm, they are past tense. And whenever there's a psalm that has a lot of past tense verbs— that's a clear indicator to us that this is, a, this, is, this is something that has been prayed over a long period of time. Something that's been repeated over and over and over again. And the fact that it's included in the 150 psalms of the Bible is another indicator to us of this same thing. These, these psalms were put together by the, the, the Jewish people intentionally. Intentionally so that they could go back to them time and time again. This psalm is not an isolated to be treated as an isolated prayer. This is something to be prayed over a long period of time because it takes time to work through doubts. It takes time to pray through doubts. It's not a quick, simple, one-and-done thing, and it can be a grind. The psalmist digs in. The psalmist continues to go back to the same things time and time again. Now, this year, uh, many people were blown away by the Toronto Raptors' work ethic. I made it two Sundays without using the Raptors as an illustration. But all the way from from Kawhi Leonard's quiet, persistent presence on the basketball court to uh, Pascal Siakam and, and the, the humble hustle that he became known for. Right? The, the Raptors were known for just doing things the right way, digging in, playing consistent basketball. And, and there's a lot to be said about how we can take that and apply it into our Christian faith, because just like the playoffs are an incredible grind, when you think about it, after an 82-game season to enter into four playoff series that, that last for almost two months, like that is, a, that is a, a wild and crazy grind, day in and day out, sacrificing yourself on the court. If we apply the same principles to prayer, to wrestling with doubt, it fits in so nicely, because, because faith is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. doesn't happen overnight. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Do we give up? Or do we dig in and keep praying like this psalmist did time and time again, day after day? How are you digging into your doubts? How are you wrestling with them? Right, when we can ask ourselves questions that, that are helpful in this, you know, like like how are we pray? How, how does prayer fit into the, our lives that, that that help us wrestle with these things? What books are we reading to help answer questions that we have? Who are we talking to to help us understand things that that we can't speak into our life experience in a way that we can't necessarily? Sometimes it's very helpful to invite others to speak into our lives and say, hey. I'm having a hard time with this. What do you see? God gives us Christian friends for that very reason. He also gives us the Holy Spirit. The contemporary testimony describes the work of God's Spirit so well. So the Spirit renews our hearts and moves us to faith, leads us into truth, and helps us pray. Are we praying for the Holy Spirit to help us wrestle with our doubts? The Holy Spirit stands by us in our need and makes us obedient and vibrant again. Faith is a journey. Secondly, the psalmist voices their doubts. He brings his troubles and his doubts into the open. He says, my heart meditated my spirit asked. We can count them. First, doubt. Will the Lord reject me forever? Second, will he never show his favor again? Third, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Fourth, has his promise failed for all time? Fifth, has God forgotten to be merciful? Sixth, has he in anger withheld his compassion? Boom, 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 boom. Praying to God, bringing it out into the open. Now this can be an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. I think often it's because we, we see doubt as a sign of weakness. But, but doubt is not something that's wrong with us. In an article that, that I read this week, the author said, it isn't doubt itself that drives people away from the church. It's the silence that doubt can bring. It's the silence. The dangerous thing when we wrestle with doubts is not voicing them and just pushing them down. Bringing them out into the open is how we work through them and how God transforms us. How do we voice our doubts? How do, how do you talk to people about things that, that, that you're wrestling with? Remember, the psalms are communal prayers, and this one is written to be a musical prayer. And so this would have been sung in community. And one of the most beautiful things to do is to to have the freedom to speak our hearts in the midst of other people who can come alongside us and help us. And that's what's beautiful about this communal psalm is that, that, that this person is not in isolation they they they're surrounded by others who can support them. But oftentimes we get to a place where we think, okay, there's got to be a line. There's got to be a line. There's got to be one doubt that is too far. That that God will not accept me. That that he will never forgive me for. The doubt for that this psalmist Is in verse 10, where he says, To this I will appear, appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. As I was reading through the psalm this week, I was more confused on one word than I ever have been before, ever. Because the word appeal in this passage is actually the word wounded in the Hebrew. And I could not understand for the life of me how the translators got from wounded to appeal. Other translations helped me a little bit. One of the commentators gave, gave a, a literal illustration, a, a, a tr- translation of this, and said, The psalmist in verse 10 is saying, It's my grief right now that the hand of the Lord has changed. That it's now coming down on me instead of my enemies. That God is no longer being merciful to me. Or Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase, puts it like this. He says, just my luck. The high God goes out of business the moment that I need him. What if God is against me? What if God's mercy has run out? What if the problem is me, and always will be? How does the psalmist respond to this doubt? The doubt in himself. He worships. He worships. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. The first half of this psalm have the pronoun I. I, 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 I feel, I'm wrestling, I need your help. The second half, verse 10 to 20, turns to worship and the pronouns change. I to you. You, God, are holy. You, God, are the one who performs miracles. You display your powers among the people. And he looks at two different stories from Israel's history in which God was, was faithful and showed his power and saved his people. Two stories are the Exodus and Mount Sinai, when God makes a covenant. We see the clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. That's, that's a, an image that the psalmist is recalling to being at Mount Sinai and God's presence being on the mountain and the thunder and the power of God that the people would be able to see from where they were at the foot of the mountain. And the other is, is the one of, of the, the Exodus and the Passover where he says, With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Those two stories frame this psalmist's worship and what changes the posture of his prayer. Both of these stories talk about how God saves. I heard a story one time about two Israelites the night before the Exodus. The night where the angel of the Lord swept over Egypt and killed all the firstborn in the nation. Except those who God entrusted, or entrusted with, with His word to slaughter the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And that the angel of the Lord would pass over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts and they would be saved. And the story goes like this. I heard this from a pastor one time. Picture two Jews in your head. The one's name is Smith and the other's name is Brown very Jewish names. And this is the night before the Passover, and they're having a discussion together. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what is going to happen tonight? And Brown responds, well, God told us through his servant Moses, haven't you slaughtered the lamb? Haven't you dabbed the doorposts with blood? Haven't you done that? Haven't, haven't you packed? Aren't you packed and ready to go? Aren't you ready to move out of this country when God, when God redeems us? Have you prepared the Passover meal? And the other one responds, Of course, I'm not stupid. Of course I've done that. But it's still pretty scary, don't you think? Considering all the things that have been happening around here with the flies and the Nile turning to blood. It's all pretty scary. It's all right for you when you hear about this firstborn son thing. You've got three sons, but I've only got my son, Charlie. It's scary. In other words, doubt. The one responds, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. And the other, I don't know. That night, the angel of death passed over. And which one saved? Both of them. Because it was the blood that saved them. The blood is what makes the difference. Death passes over them, not in the clarity... Not on the strength of their faith, but on the object of their faith. The blood is what makes the difference. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb who went to the cross and shed his blood for our sin, for our brokenness. And there's a New Testament story that kind of goes along with this, this, this one of these two Israelites, and it goes like this. There was one disciple who ran to the tomb, Peter, and saw it and believed. There were others who heard about it and believed, and there was one who doubted, who doubted, Thomas. Thomas doubted. Which one was, was part of God's people? Which one was saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? The answer is both of them. Because it's not in the strength or the clarity of our faith. It is on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And this frees us to do what this psalmist is doing and pray and wrestle with our doubts, because it isn't in the strength of our faith that we are saved. It's in the object of our faith that we are saved. Doubt is a part of the Christian life, and we should talk about it, and we can talk about it, because our salvation is rooted in the grace we receive through Jesus Christ, and not of of anything that we earn. The irony is this. The more we wrestle with these doubts, The more we voice these things, pray through them, the more we will be transformed. The stronger our faith will be. Pray through doubts. Dig in for the journey of faith. Bring them out into the open and worship God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the psalms that we can learn how to pray, that we can see how you've shaped history and called us as your people and saved us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that we would see that that we can bring our doubts into the open, be honest about them, and that you will transform us. You You will strengthen our faith through your Holy Spirit working in us. God, we pray that you would give us the boldness to do this and the uh, attention to those who are wrestling with doubts. Lord, we thank you that we are saved not on the strength of our faith, but on the object of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.